Today is the 18th of November, 2014, and this is episode 163. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we're looking at some enabling technologies. I talked to Dan from SolidX Partners, part finance guy, part early Bitcoiner, as he explains total return swaps and how they've tied them together with Bitcoin to bring crypto to hedge funds and family offices. But first, we catch up with the team at Block.io to talk about their free service that, among other things, will let you bring trustless multi-sig to your application with ease. Enjoy the show. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by two of the team over at Block.io. Atif, the chief executive officer. Hey, Adam. And Marshall, their chief of marketing. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Hey, how's it going, Adam? It's pretty good over here, you know? <laughs> so... I love seeing all of these APIs. I got to tell you, Block.io, I, I want you to tell me about your service. And honestly, I don't know too much about it. But just looking at the page here, it's obvious to me that you guys are essentially trying to provide backend service and kind of make it easy for, I see not the least of which, multi-signature wallets, people to essentially offer that type of service. So tell me, what is Block.io? What do you guys do? So we started about a year and a half ago, just playing around with Bitcoin and we saw how hard it was to to get started or even to to figure out whether it can have gone through or not, let alone create a wallet or a service that integrates the blockchain. We created Block.io from the perspective of the end user, not the developers. The, the developers today, they're not what they were 10 or 12 years ago. They love to copy paste widgets and they love to add a couple of lines of code and then get it running. That's what Block.io is supposed to do. And it does it remarkably well so far. You're saying that developers are different, but I have to tell you, it strikes me that the thing that's different is that things are so complex now. I mean, maybe it was that not always the case, but it just seems like that in order to actually really do a good job on whatever the thing is that you really are focused on, you kind of need to just be able to focus on that. So, you know, like this is an important level of service. If you guys are providing this backend, yeah, that's partly ease of use. But partly it's lowering the barrier to entry, right? So that you can just get in there and only focus on the part that you want because the other stuff is easy. Agreed. The complexity of things have gone up, but the accessibility of information, especially with Google, is just way too high. And it rightfully so. Spot on. Something that I noticed in cryptocurrency startups, you generally don't have a lot of time. It, it, everything that, that's going on in Bitcoin is moving at least two or three times faster than the general tech landscape, I feel like. And if you burn, you know, a couple months trying to figure out how to get your Bitcoin D running and get your, your hosting done, that could be the time that could make or break you or someone could copy your idea or competition comes in and you can't continue. So it seems like your type of user, you know, like a blockchain.info is something that is generally interesting, right? It, it has lots of numbers and tells you kind of what's going on with the network. It seems like that's not really the type of market you're approaching here. So tell me, what is your type of customer? Who am I who you're explaining this to? You are a VR developer or whatever developer, and you are coming up to us and saying, look, I have this enormous thing to focus on. I have to come up with a new idea. I have to come up with a new way to use Bitcoin. 
I don't want to spend a couple of months trying to figure out how to use the blockchain, how to convert bytes to hex and hex to bytes and then cryptography and all that. Please handle that part for me. Please handle the infrastructure for me. I just want to focus on my application. That's who we're focusing on. And so what does it cost for me to get that convenience from you and not have to do all those things? Right now, nothing. Absolutely nothing. We'll come to pricing when, when the time is right, maybe in six or seven months. Okay. So you guys are at the minimum viable product stage and you're, you know, so you're putting this out there. What's the response been like? The response has been great. Just yesterday, a school teacher reached out to us from greenhouse.org, I believe. He informs us that he's been teaching children about the blockchain. About 90 of his students through block.io just because it's that simple to interact with him. That's amazing. And there are other people similarly trying to learn about the blockchain. And that's how it starts, really. The revolution are developing on Bitcoin. So what types of features do you offer here? So like what things that you're simplifying? I'm looking at the front page and I see you have Curl and Ruby and Node.js. Again, like I'm not a coder. I assume that these are different uh, interpretations uh, of essentially the, the API that you offer. When you create an application, you'll create in most likely one of these uh, these uh, languages if you're not doing it in iOS or Java. You come up to us and say, look, I just want to get started. So you just install that package and all it does is interact very, very easily with the block.io API. So it used to be very, very simple in API v1 when you didn't have uh, multi-signature addresses. You had to have block.io sign your transactions, but we don't do that anymore. In API v2, we have multisig, and these libraries take care of the client-side signing and the cryptography part of it are highly secure as well, given they use deterministic signatures and BIP62, etc., to secure transactions against privacy leaks and so on. So these are pretty complex tools. Well, so in the multisig wallets, so that means that I could create an application, like we have the Let's Talk Bitcoin network application that we're going to be adding wallet functionality to. So we would be able to take essentially this API, we would be able to use that instead of building our own core or, or our own backend for it. How, is, how does multisig come into play here? When you're using a hosted service, if you're using a web wallet, it's going to use JavaScript to create your keys. And then you can come in and it will give you an encrypted passphrase or whatever key you, you created, just like blockchain.info. You will use your password, and then the JavaScript will decrypt your private key and so on. So in that manner, it becomes a little secure. The server has no idea, even if it gets hacked, has no idea what your passphrase or private key is. With block.io, it's a hosted service. I mean, there is no JavaScript layer blocking users or handling the decryption for the users. Um, So we have to do it through the REST API. You can just use a URL to access the API. So how do you make sure that only the user is in control of their keys. Well, we do that through uh, multi-signature addresses. One of the keys is block.io's. It guarantees that this address cannot ever double spend any transactions or even attempt to. And one key is in control of the user. Block.io has no idea how to use that key, how to decrypt it. We just have no idea how that's made. So block.io, in essence, has no control over your funds. And this is more secure than other services out there because the keys are distributed between two entities. Okay, so this is a two-party multi-sig key. Does that mean that it requires only one of the two keys or two of the two keys in this context? Because doesn't that mean that if the block.io service were to say go away, then this could potentially cause all of those applications using this as the back end to have a problem? Yes, that is a concern. 
So this is a two of two address. It requires the block.io signature and the user signature. The reason we didn't do two of three is because of green addresses. We want users on block.io and anyone that integrates with block.io's green addresses and their services, like a couple of exchanges have, I think. We need to get away from the 10 minute confirmation barrier. That's, that's a huge turnoff for users. So we do that through the two of two signatures. I mean, block.io is guaranteed to have a say in every single transaction and we will not sign a transaction if it's double spending. So that's how we do green addresses. In the future though, we will allow you to take your private keys whenever you want. So even if block.io goes down, hey, you have complete control of your addresses. The only downside will be it won't be green addresses. Well, that makes sense to me. So I think I understand your service and I think I understand basically the type of thing that you're providing. And I agree that that is in fact quite a service and certainly one for free right now. So green addresses and instant transfers. Talk to me about that for a second, because it's one of those things that, you know, I've talked about it with somebody a year ago, but so many people are new. So what? why do green addresses help the situation with, you know, accepting like, I, I want to buy a cup of coffee. Why is a green address better? The green address is something that's the idea has been around for a while. It's a really interesting concept because generally when we use the internet, we trust centralized sites. Like I can trust a certain website, but trusting all these different websites that I'm shopping on starts to get tricky, especially if it's a small mom and pop shop or some small online retailer. The beautiful thing about Block.io that we have with Green Address is that you can trust Block.io. We've been around for a minute, and as we progress, you'll see the more services that we offer. But basically, we won't allow transactions to credit into our system unless they reach an optimal amount of confirmations. It's three plus confirmations for Bitcoin, 10 plus for Dogecoin. If they reach that amount of confirmations then essentially we're guaranteeing or we're signing one of those two transactions saying that this is good and you can trust it immediately. So you don't have to wait for that initial confirmation, which takes 10 minutes. It will show zero confirmations, but you can use our API to see if it's a green address transaction or not. So long as block.io is is good, then the service is good. You know, there is there is a bit of centralization here. So in the future, I mean, like, you know, I like to ask, do you have a federated solution in mind? I mean, like, what are your failure contingencies? Because while it would be great if every company stayed around all the time ever, the reality is that's not what happens. The multi-sig, for example, that's a very binary thing. And you need to be a party on every transaction that goes through. So if there are 100 services using block.io as their backend, do you have any plans to address this? Do you think it's a problem? And you know, if you do have any plans, what are they? Well, with regard to the private keys, you will be able to export whatever private keys you have. The only downside to that will be we cannot guarantee that you will try to double spend anymore. So that won't be a green address anymore as, long, as soon as you export your private keys. You will have complete access to your private keys. And that means all of your funds. The only centralization I can see comes from the green address part of it. So if there are a hundred different services and they are interacting with the green address network at block.io and block.io goes down, yeah, the service has gone down. This was block.io guaranteeing that a transaction can never double spend amounts. So yeah, that part goes down without a doubt. We might have solutions for this with, with distributed SPV and network consensus before confirmation is reached, but that's too early to, to say right now. So tell me, 
what kinds of applications have you seen people jumping into with this? Now that it's easy, what are people starting to use it for? And Marshall, actually, before before we get to that, um, I heard you describe, you, you mentioned, you know, you tried to mention a time frame as like a reason why people would trust. And then you're like, well, a minute. I'm curious, how long has the company actually been around? Um, well, we've been around for a couple months now. Uh, Atif started this project earlier this year. Uh, well, actually, I guess it kind of started late last year as SoChain that project developed and that is pretty much the premier dogecoin block explorer at this point but also handles bitcoin and litecoin transactions as well we've been in the crypto space for a little while now the company actually has has only been around for a couple months but atif and i have been pretty active in the crypto scene we're well-known people in the space we ride off that trust a little bit but yeah we plan on going for a long time into the future and showing people uh, the different kind of applications that we'll be doing. We've already had a lot of people writing really cool applications, some various hackathon submissions for uh, one for Salesforce, different stuff. It's really interesting to see all the cool little apps that people are building. We also have Dogekeeper, which is a is a well known app in the App Store. That's a Dogecoin wallet. That's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's actually pretty heavily used. So as Marshall said, you know, you started this project as actually a Dogecoin project. So tell me about that. Tell me about your relationship with the Dogecoin community and tell me about the differences in working with, you know, what's it like working with a project on the Dogecoin side rather than on the, you know, Bitcoin side? You know, you can you can post anything on the Dogecoin subreddit or the Dogecoin developer subreddit and no one's going to come up to you and say, hey, you're a moron. Why didn't you do it this 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 uh, couple of decimals are off. You're, so you're such a moron. You should just go and uh, live with your mom. No one's going to say that to you. Everyone's going to be very, very, very supportive. And that's really what got me started. It's Bitcoin. It's the blockchain, the cryptography. Dude, these things are intimidating. If the community is not supporting you, if the community is not coming up to you and saying, look, I know you fucked up, but dude, that was an amazing job. Keep going. That's what Dogecoin does. And that's why we got started over there. I don't mean to berate the Bitcoin community, but they can be super, super harsh on even the smallest mistakes. So Bitcoin's business and Dogecoin's family. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I like that. We really like Dogecoin. I, I, Atif and I are both connected in the Dogecoin community, and it's just such an awesome, awesome community. People really come together and do charity events. Bitcoin gives uh, a lot of stuff to charity, but Dogecoin is just has this awesome community vibe that we love. All right, guys. So tell me, you know, what's coming next for Block.io? Any chance you're expanding into user-created assets or any sort of things like that I'm going to be interested in? User-created assets are a little farther off. We're working on easy documentation for 405 multisig in the next couple of weeks if everything goes well. So what you can do is you don't need to trust Block.io for anything at all. So when you create an address, you can provide uh, four additional public keys that need to sign this address. You can specify how many signatures of those you need. At max, you can specify three or four of those signatures. And because Block.io is signing the transaction, it becomes a 405 address. But you don't need Block.io's signature. You can just use the four signatures for the, for the public keys you provided. So that's coming up soon. And we're really, really excited about that. We went with a couple of partners. One of them is, is pretty big in the, in the Dogecoin community, and one of them is creating services for contract for other developers. So we're really excited about it. Let's see how it happens. Oh, the term is distributed trust, because it's not just simple multisig. It's not extended multisig. 
you can distribute the cross between many people. Before we wrap this interview, tell me about the Block.io company. Are you guys funded? If so, how did that happen? What does that look like? Also, what does your staff look like and are you hiring? So our staff consists of three people. It's me and Marshall. Marshall's handling the marketing. I am handling the operations and the day-to-day activities. And then we have an advisor, Patrick Lauder, who is also a Dogecoin core developer. We are basically working around the clock to be in a position where we know that everything is steady before we start taking on funding from outside investors. Funding is actually a last resort for us. We don't want to get into funding. We don't want to take people's money. We want to stay lean. We want to keep doing this and hopefully make money before we even start talking about raising. We're not hiring right now. We're good for that. The address is block.io. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having us. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to send Bitcoins right from your browser. That's K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T.com if you'd like to learn more. Today's magic word is bundle. That's B-U-N-D-L-E, bundle. You've got until the 22nd of November to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app and enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Back to the show. One would think, if you're a Bitcoiner, as I am in part, you know, half Bitcoiner, half finance guy, that there would be far more institutional involvement in the Bitcoin space. And when I say institutional involvement, what I mean specifically is hedge funds, family offices, investment management companies, putting capital to work, specifically buying Bitcoin or buying alts putting capital into Bitcoin as opposed to, you know, VC investment in the space, XYZ wallet gets funded, XYZ exchange gets funded. That's not what I'm talking about. There's plenty of that going on. That's great stuff. But what I'm talking about is really the the more conventional, established, traditional, stodgy old New York City finance circuit getting involved here. And I would say on a relative basis, we've seen surprisingly little of that. You know, there's literally trillions of dollars of capital out there managed by hedge funds, family offices, mutual funds, you name it. And the allocation to Bitcoin right now is virtually nil. The reason for that, one of the reasons for that, is largely that it's not really on the menu in the way that equities or fixed income instruments or traditional securities are on the menu. If you're a hedge fund, for example... You're accustomed to a particular workflow, particular things around custody, compliance, clearing, settlement that all exist in a very established way. And the way it's done in the Bitcoin world is totally different and actually far more efficient in many senses, but completely incompatible with the way we do it in the Bitcoin world. What we're trying to do here is be that connector. And I come from the hedge fund world. 
we know that there are folks at funds who have a particular interest in this. They own Bitcoin personally, right? They, you know, they have a Coinbase account or you know, they went on Bitstamp, but whatever it is, they, you know, they have it. You know, a tech analyst at XYZ Fund. You know, I, know, I know these guys. The feedback that I get from them is, yeah, we love it. We think it's great. We can't pitch it to our portfolio manager because they're going to look at us like we have six heads. There's just no way to get it in the portfolio. So what we're trying to do is eliminate that barrier. And then to go beyond that and really start to slowly but surely establish within the institutional finance community a lot of the advantages that the blockchain can provide in terms of taking over some of the activities that are done in this sort of stodgy old way on Wall Street and updating them to be done in a way that's far more efficient using the blockchain. That's sort of step two. There are a lot of advantages, of course, that the blockchain can bring to the institutional investing community in terms of business processes that are right now very inefficient, far more costly than they should be. And I'm not talking about things like remittances. I'm talking about the way, the way we deal with business processes within institutional investing the way we deal with securities, the way we deal with how the process flows from when a trader makes a purchase to when it's recognized at an institutional custodian. All of these things are very well established and not necessarily the most efficient that they could be. And the blockchain offers a variety of efficiencies, but getting people to do that is a very slow process. Everyone in Bitcoin land knows that blockchain is disruptive, right? The VCs say this is the most disruptive thing since TCPIP. Sure, I agree. But disruption doesn't happen overnight. You look at something like Uber, right? And they truly disrupted the taxicab industry. The taxicab industry isn't nearly as entrenched and institutionalized and regulated as is the financial services industry. So disrupting the taxicab industry, and don't get me wrong, I think Uber's great, disrupting the financial services industry. It's just a totally different beast, right? The same could be said for Airbnb, you know, the hotel industry, right? Yes, it's highly disruptive. It's great. It's great for consumers. It creates a lot of economic value over the long term. But disrupting that industry, again, it's far easier than financial services. What we want to do, and we come from a financial services background, is bring these two things together and enable this disruption process to be expedited in a sense. Not disruption in a way that hurts either side, I think there's a lot of value to be created on both sides that everyone benefits. But right now, I think the two sides are incompatible and somewhat not afraid of each other, but kind of put off by each other. The roots of Bitcoin are very much anti-established financial services. And the financial services community had looked at Bitcoin, certainly in the Gox era, as this foreign, weird thing. The reality is both sides benefit when they come together, but you have to have folks who will understand both sides and say, okay, I can assemble the pieces and make side A understand side B and make side B understand side A and connect them. And that's what we do. That's Dan. He's the CEO at SolidX Partners. So Dan, you were talking about kind of the disconnect that you see in the market as far as what should be a very attractive thing to essentially these large institutional investors and and cryptocurrency, and yet that connection isn't happening. We haven't talked about financial services in a while. We haven't really talked about the hedge fund scene in a while. You mentioned 
that things are just not in the right format is really what I heard from you is that these types of users have certain expectations of how things will be presented to them or how they'll interact with them or what, what even a package looks like or constitutes. Is that what you're talking about? You're saying essentially taking the Bitcoin investable, quote unquote, and repackaging it in a way that just makes natural, intuitive sense to the more institutional investors. That's right. There's a bit more than that. It's not just the repackaging. Repackaging is part of the story, but it's also a matter of understanding a lot about how things work within the Bitcoin ecosystem and how the blockchain works, and also understanding how to think about value. How do you look at this and say, okay, it's worth X dollars or you know Y euros, whatever it may be, right? There are no parameters around that that are traditional valuation parameters that a hedge fund analyst can use and present to a portfolio manager and say, this is what I think this is worth. So it's a series of things. But back to the first thing that you had mentioned, the packaging, so to speak. When you look at the securities industry and you look at hedge fund industry, the mutual fund industry, and the investment management industry in general, what you see is a set of established processes that fit within a particular framework and have particular parameters around them. So a trader makes a trade, trade settles three days later, settlement and clearing is done in a very specific way. Custody of the underlying asset is at an established custodian. There are very large custody banks that do that. Reporting is done in a very specific way. The asset itself is generally something that's recognized by the SEC or, or perhaps the CFTC. These things have, for example, a QSIP number, which is a, a particular number that's associated with a particular security. There are all these parameters around the established financial system. None of them exist within the Bitcoin ecosystem. Now, part of that is a great thing. That goes to its, its genesis, right? It came out of people saying, hey, I want something different. But this lack of compatibility is one of the things that has kept institutional investors out. So it's really, it's not just the lack of compatibility, which is what I'm talking about right now, but also the first thing, which is how do you value this thing? If you look at a stock, for example, the way a portfolio manager or an analyst would value the stock is they would look at the expected future cash flows of the stock and they'd say, okay, I think the stock's going to earn a dollar next year. I think that the PE multiple on that stock should be 15. Therefore, the stock's worth $15. Now, Bitcoin's not an earning asset, which is similar to commodities. But with commodities, people generally have a supply curve and a demand curve, and they try and figure out where they meet. We have a very specific supply curve for Bitcoin. What's the demand curve? How do we draw it? There's all this stuff, all these issues that the institutional community faces. Nonetheless, you have a ton of very bright people, folks who I know who I think are great analysts within the institutional community who, like me, own Bitcoin personally. They see the future. They see the potential for this asset class. And they're saying to themselves, I love it. I think it's great. I'm buying it myself. But they're saying at the same time, I can't pitch this to my portfolio manager. I can't get this in the portfolio. First of all, because of the incompatibility. And second of all, because if I were to pitch it, I couldn't even put a price target on it. I'd been making something up and there's no good framework for it. These issues, I think, have largely kept the institutional community 
out of this new asset class. And there are other issues as well. We've just started. I'm still trying to understand what actually what what the actual core offering is that you're doing. So pretend for a second that, you know, I'm your target market. You're trying to explain to me the value and the service that you're providing. How do you go about doing that? What we offer, and this is the first thing we're offering to get the ball rolling here, are what are known as total return swaps on Bitcoin. Now, people throw around the word swap all the time. It can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. Swaps themselves, I think, got a bit of a bad name during the financial crisis when people talked about credit default swaps causing all sorts of problems. I think Warren Buffett called them financial weapons of mass destruction. We also offer swaps, but they are not financial weapons of mass destruction. What a total return swap does, there are two counterparties. One counterparty would be long or synthetically long a particular instrument, and one counterparty would be synthetically short a particular instrument. A hedge fund, for example, that wanted to be synthetically long Bitcoin would enter into a total return swap with a counterparty who is effectively synthetically short Bitcoin. Now, the the party that's synthetically short Bitcoin has a choice. They could take that risk. They would have to make good on that contract when it comes to its termination, or they can hedge it by buying the underlying, you know, buying Bitcoin or doing other stuff. But the idea here is these specific swaps are ISDA form swaps. And ISDA is the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, which is the organization that essentially creates the contractual framework within which swaps in the financial services industry are built. Swaps in the financial services industry, and that's credit default swaps, interest rate swaps, total return swaps, you name it. The framework is ISDA. And in the United States, they are, for the most part, governed by the CFTC. So these are institutional grade instruments that fit within the already established framework that the institutional community understands and interacts with on a daily basis. So all of those incompatibility issues that I was talking about before, if you're a hedge fund and you're engaging in a swap, those incompatibility issues go away. You don't have to think about it but you get the economic exposure to Bitcoin that you would have if you were to you know, buy it on one of the many exchanges, store it yourself, you know, store it yourself you know, do whatever you have to do. It's the same thing. You just don't have to deal with any of the underpinnings and you don't have to think about the, the lack of compatibility between Bitcoin ecosystem and the institutional ecosystem. We deal with all of that. Okay. And so when you say that you deal with that, I'm curious, are you actually holding the Bitcoin and then you create, you act as the Bitcoin side of the, of the swap, or are you just doing matchmaking between two different parties? In most cases, we are holding the actual Bitcoin because there's a, there's a mismatch. Most institutional investors see this on the long side rather than the short side. I don't want to give percentages around it. It's an optimistic market, though. <laughs> it's a, it's a more, let's say, you know, 80-20. So with that other 20, which are, you know, entities that think that Bitcoin's going to go away and they, you know, they think it's a scam or whatever, blah, 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 they want to be shorted. There are certain instances, not all, in which I can match those swaps with the long swaps. It depends. It depends on a, on a lot of different parameters. But you're exactly right. What you said is, you know, are you pairing people off? And the answer is sometimes yes. Yeah. So basically, when it's when it makes sense, then you do that. But that's not a like limiting factor. If someone wants to go long, you're willing to provide the other side of that. So I mean, is there if it's if it's eighty percent, twenty percent, 
I mean, are there any concerns about, I mean, because it seems like you, you necessarily are going to be betting very heavily on the short. The other side of that is that we Delta One hedge all of our long exposure by going out and buying Bitcoin. Ah. All we are really doing is, because I don't want to be short Bitcoin, <laughs> I want to be long, I want to be short that. So you're just holding risk, basically. You're using this as a way to lever up your own holdings and you're holding risk. Close. We're not levering up our own holdings. The idea is that we're not taking risk, right? What we're doing is enabling the counterparty, that you know, the institutional investor, to have exposure to this thing, to Bitcoin, lowercase b, and have it in a way such that they're confident that you know, at the end of the trade, they're going to get paid out. Whatever it is. Maybe Bitcoin goes up 20%. Maybe it goes down 30%. Maybe it goes up fivefold. We don't, we don't know. I can't predict. But the counterparty, the institutional investor, needs to know that at the end of the trade, it's going to close out in a way that they're accustomed to. And that at the inception of the trade, it's going to be open in the, in the way they're accustomed to. And everything is compatible in terms of all of the infrastructure that they're accustomed to and all the reporting that they're accustomed to. On our side, when I say a Delta One hedge, you know what I mean by that is for every dollar's worth of Bitcoin at the inception of a trade that I am effectively short on swap, we are effectively long by owning the underlying. Now, again, we don't have to do that. And there may be instances in which we don't. If I wanted to have short exposure for some brief amount of time, I could do that. But the idea here is to provide access. You know, we charge a small fee for this. And that's how we make our money is basically by enabling this thing and charging small fees in exchange for it. Bitcoin is clearly on one side of this equation. And my assumption is that dollars are on the other side of the equation because you're you know, based out of New York. Do you think that will always strictly be the case? Or are, you, is there, are there plans to expand to currencies beyond the dollar? And also of note, but slightly tangential, we live in a world where there are more cryptocurrencies out there than just Bitcoin. And while Bitcoin certainly makes sense for what you're talking about now, you know, I'm curious if you have any ambitions beyond that. Absolutely. On the fiat side, if somebody wanted to do something in euros or Japanese yen, we would find a way to do it. We haven't encountered that yet. I suspect that we will in the future. That's easy. And that's the easy part. Now, other blockchain related stuff. Okay. And I'm going to use, I'm going to call it that for, for lack of a better description. Let, let me separate it into, into pieces. If someone wanted to be long synthetically Litecoin, we'd find a way to do it. That's easy. Then you start getting into more esoteric things, right? And things that are a little bit more speculative in nature or things that are not fully developed. I love Ethereum, the idea behind it, okay? I think that's a brilliant idea. Because it's not yet across the finish line, I can't provide a swap on it. But if it crosses the finish line, I would love to provide a swap on it. Beyond that, there are a lot of financial assets that you can create within the blockchain, that we can provide swaps on. And here's one of the most important pieces. One of the reasons we chose swaps is because you can customize the cash flows. So you can imagine a blockchain-based credit default swap, right? Where everything's in the blockchain. You could use any number of the various different types of app coins that you could use to create this sort of thing. And it'll have a set of cash flows, can match those cash flows using is form swaps and offer that as an instrument to hedge funds. So the hedge fund doesn't have to know about the intricacies of what's going on behind the scenes with the blockchain and the creations that come out of that. All they have to know is that here are the cash flows associated with this instrument. The hedge fund knows they're going to get them. 
So it sounds like the point of this and, you know, what, what in reality, this is for the user quite simple. So you said that the way that your company makes money is based off of fees. Can you talk about the fee structure? So the fee structure varies depending on what the counterparty wants. There are various different permutations. It's approximately 1% in, 1% out, but that can change depending on what the specific counterparty wants. There are particular add-ons that we can give or particular things that we could take away you know, to make it either more expensive and provide a higher level of service or less expensive and you know, keep things pretty easy. Certainly. I, let me ask that question a slightly different way. <laughs> As I am not a family office and I have no idea what normal is, how close to normal are you? Or is it, I mean, would you be perceived by someone who is your target audience as being right in there, expensive, less expensive than normal? We're pretty much normal. And here's the reason. So total return swaps, we're obviously not the first entity to embrace this. Total return swaps are actually used fairly frequently in the context of U.S. investors wanting exposure to, say, equities in foreign markets where there are regulatory or capital constraints that prevent direct exposure. So, for example, there are markets in Asia, stock markets in Asia, where as a U.S. investor, you can't directly be long some particular stock in some particular Asian market. So the way you do it is via total return swap. It's the same thing, except replace Bitcoin with stock in Asia, right? Same thing as we're doing. Now, the more esoteric the end market, the higher the fees. So if you look at certain markets, emerging markets in Africa, the fees can be very high because getting that swap done and getting the other side of it hedged can be expensive and logistically difficult. So you know there are oftentimes where the fees will be above what we are offering. But this is sort of framed in the way right now as a frontier market would be. It's seen that way by our counterparties. The other thing is our counterparties on the long side, you know, counterparties that want to be long Bitcoin, generally have a view that it's option-like in nature and very asymmetric in terms of its payouts. So if Bitcoin, I'm using air quotes here, works, <laughs> then the expectation is not my, I'm not, this is not me. This is, you know, this is what they tell me is that it will go up many fold. I can give you my expectation later on, but I just want to tell you what, what I see out there in the market. If it doesn't work, again, air quotes, then it disappears. So it's sort of like a traditional plain vanilla option on a stock, an out-of-the-money option, where if things work out, you could have a great return. The option will maybe double or triple in value. Right? If it doesn't work out, it goes to zero. The difference here with Bitcoin is that the upside is viewed as far greater than one would view the upside with a conventional option. So, you know, maybe you're going to make 2x on a stock option. Maybe you're going to make 10x on Bitcoin. If you're going to make 10x on some asset, you don't really care so much about paying 100 bips. You just, this is not a problem. Like paying 1% is not, it's not an issue. Now, if you don't believe that, if you're, if you're playing for 10%, that changes the picture. We haven't really seen that many people who are getting involved in swaps for a 10% return. There's just not really a market for that right now. That makes sense. So um, what is the, like, if, if you could say an average duration of 
these types of contracts? I mean, what are we talking about here? Is this like a month, a year, multiple years? We're offering, you know, minimum duration of six months. But what one can do is one can roll the swap, which means the counterparty can say, okay, we want to keep this thing alive for longer than six months. There's some small incremental fee that we're going to charge. We want to add and pack another six months on. It's hard for me to give you the average duration. I could tell you what we offer. I'm just curious, like, what, what do you find people using? I mean, that's the relevant question here is like, what, is, what do people find useful of the things that you offer? More than six months, nine months to a year with a decent expectation that they're going to roll. So a decent expectation that they're going to roll. And so when they roll, do they keep the price that they locked in during that initial yeah, option? Well, the way a roll works is you got in at, let's use today's price, which is you know 380 or something like that. You got in at 380. It's a year from now. Let's say it's at you know 450. I'm just picking a price. You're still locked in, you know, at 380 for the for the inception price. So nothing changes there. All you're doing is paying some small incremental fee to extend the life of the swap. Okay. So tell me a little bit about SolidX Partners. You know, uh, we've talked about what you do. How long have you guys been around? You know, I noticed your webpage is still kind of in a, a landing page mode, and there isn't too much information. So how are you acquiring new clients? Is it just word of mouth? Two questions in one there. Why don't I start with the second one? We're purely institutional, right? So we don't have any retail. We can't have any retail counterparties. The way it works is the CFTC regulations mandate that counterparties have $10 million in assets. That's not equity. It's assets. It's it's an interesting test. Um, The counterparties need to be what are known as ECPs, eligible contract participants. It basically eliminates anyone who's a retail investor and makes this purely an institutional vehicle. Now, why that's the case, ask them. I, you know, that's, that's a question for them. But that's the regulatory framework, and we abide by all the regulations. We have to. We want, you know, we want to. That's part of the thing that we're offering is a very compliant, very regulatory, buttoned-up thing. So the reason that the webpage is kind of blank is because we're not really advertising in that way. So what we're doing you know, we have direct outreach to... So this actually comes back to one of the reasons why Bitcoin hasn't really reached the institutional investing landscape as much as it should. We're reaching out to the traditional entities that interface with institutional investors. And that's the broker-dealer community, the prime broker community. These are the guys who will call a particular investor you know, at a particular fund and say, hey, I have this great idea for you. You should buy XYZ stock, and here's the reason why. And I'm not talking about you know, a broker calling mom and pop. I'm, calling, I'm talking about an institutional broker calling someone who they interface with on the institutional side, an institutional client, and then providing that client with research and material and stuff like that. We're using that same distribution channel, that same sales channel for our swaps. Because it's the most logical thing to do, right? Those folks already interface with the hedge fund community. There are thousands and thousands of hedge funds. There are thousands of family offices. There are thousands of mutual funds. I can't interface with all of them. I just can't. I'd love to, but it's not realistic. We're essentially outsourcing our sales force. You know, the webpage, I'll probably add some stuff here and there. But since we're not a retail entity, we don't really seek to have a, you know a flashy you know i don't need to have a flashy splash page right yeah i understand and you you're trying to keep a low profile again because you're targeting very specific clients I, that makes sense to me so my background personally prior to starting solidx i had worked in the hedge fund industry for 
many years. And then prior to that, I was in business school. Prior to that, I was a prop trader. Prior to that, I was, you know, undergrad. I studied physics and electrical engineering. But I actually discovered Bitcoin in 2011 and became enamored with it back then. So I've actually been in the Bitcoin world. It's the same thing as I was talking about with, you know, analysts who sort of see this, but they don't really get involved during the day at their day job. They're involved at night. I bought my first Bitcoins $4. Certainly, I didn't buy enough. Back in 2011, in a you know, person-to-person purchase in like a crummy office building in Midtown. I could tell you some of the stories about sort of the early Bitcoin scene in New York and some of the interesting characters that I met in my exploration. And that's what it was at the time. It was, it was an exploration. So I'm actually not that new to the scene. I'm new to the scene insofar as SolidX launched earlier this year. So I'm new to having a specific Bitcoin-related business. But I've, I've been around the Bitcoin scene quietly for quite some time and have made a lot of great contacts inside the Bitcoin ecosystem. In my travels here, uh, within both the Bitcoin community and the institutional community, I have seen some fairly interesting things. I actually had a conversation with a guy on the institutional side when I was you know, telling him about Bitcoin swaps, and his comment to me was, ah, yes, Bitcoin. Well, that's going to go away. It was created by the Yakuza as a means of helping the Japanese mafia launder money. And he said it with 100% confidence. He was sure. <laughs> you know, back in 2011, speaking with folks in the, in the Bitcoin scene here in New York, I met some fairly interesting characters, some of whom are, are no longer part of the... Uh, we probably shouldn't even get into this. Some of whom are no longer part of the Bitcoin scene largely because they've excommunicated, so to speak. It's a very, like, sort of older generation. So there was one gentleman who I met, he had a web page, and he said, you can buy Bitcoin from me directly. And it was a Sunday night, and I was reading up, and I saw this guy's web page, and he said, you can call me directly, call anytime. And it was a, a area code 646 number, which is in New York City. And it's Sunday night, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to call this thing, and I'm going to get somebody's voicemail. I call, and this guy actually picked up. And it was like Sunday at 10 p.m. I'm like, all right, this is shady. He picks up, we have this you know, whole conversation this is the guy, by the way, who I, who I first bought my Bitcoins from, the $4 transaction. Immediately, I said to myself, all right, this is something, there's something weird about this, but I, you know, I'm going to go through it because I'm in exploration mode. And what I did was I met him and had a chat with him. I said, this is really fascinating. And I actually set up a meeting. I'm part of this group of investors that evaluate new things. And this is now we're into very early 2012, very early, like January of 12. And I bring this particular guy in front of a group of, it was about a dozen institutional investors. And he gets up there to present. And every single person in the room, like their jaw drops. And they're like, what in the world are you talking about? It's monopoly money. This doesn't make any sense. And he basically gets laughed out of the room. And it was one of the most, it was embarrassing for me. And then subsequently, people started digging into more about his background and finding out that he wasn't the most savory of characters in the first place. Then, of course, a year later, early 2013, everyone in that room called me and said, hey, you know that Bitcoin thing that you were talking about last year? How do I get involved in that? So a lot of this early exposure through people who at the time, and even today, seem a little like they're on the fringe, a lot of that was the root of some of the later stuff that's happening now that's far more legitimate. And you need, I think, some of that fringe element to get you to this point. Andreessen had said this 
a couple of times at conferences, the fringe sort of gets you started. And then things move to the mainstream. The thing that, uh, that you learn from the early experiences with Bitcoin, because yeah, I was, I would, I got involved in, uh, early 2012 was when I actually started, you know, like getting into it. But in, uh, about summer of 2011 is when I started paying attention to it. Same thing. It's really the opportunists, right? I mean, it's the people who have the least to lose, who have the most to gain. And they're like, Oh, I can do this thing because I can do it. And nobody else even recognizes this as an opportunity. And it's actually, you know, I mean, that's the process is that those people come up. They get to be big. Generally, they get to be too big and then they explode, whether it's, you know, an early business or, you know, something else. Then their blow up becomes kind of the problem of the space because they were what the space was identified by until the next generation comes along. And that takes time. But it's, it's a very interesting process. Yeah. It's interesting you've been, uh, that you, you've also been involved for so long. Cause again, like the perspective changes so much over time and it's very difficult to appreciate that until you've really been through it and you, you know, go a year and you're like, Oh, wow. I was super wrong about how I was thinking about that. And actually, it's this way. Very much so. When I started becoming even more interested, I attended a dinner here in New York City. It was several members of the what was at the time the board of the Bitcoin Foundation and a couple of VCs and a, and a whole bunch of other folks. And there was someone from Gox there and all these folks. And I said to myself, wow, I am meeting the people who are going to lead everything forward. I was sure of it. I'm like, these are the guys. These are the guys. This is it. This is it. I'm meeting them. And in 20 years from now, people are going to look back and say, these guys are, you know, the Mark Andreessen of of Bitcoin. And maybe that's not going to end up being the case. But I met like all those guys at this dinner and thought to myself at the time, this is going to be it. And it turns out it's probably not going to be it. Now, some of the guys, of course, like Gavin, he was there. He's certainly going to be, you know, certainly going to be remembered as an extraordinarily important contributor to the ecosystem. And I think he's very much appreciated for that. You know, Patrick Merck was there, and I think he's also very much appreciated for all the work he's done. I think both those guys are great. But a lot of other guys, they're not really, they're just going to probably disappear from the scene. But who knows? You never know who's going to end up leading the charge later on. And I was fully convinced it was the group, like the guy from Gox, right, that he would be there in the future. And I was very wrong. If you can't be a shining example, at least be a horrible warning, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. right. Dan, thanks for having this conversation with me. Uh, SolidX Partners, you can visit them at sldx.com. And they only take hedge funds or institutional level clients. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to episode 163 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Atif, Marshall, Dan, and Adam. Music for today's show is provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.